Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Exodus 26. We're going to read very briefly from Exodus chapter 26. Verses 31 through 35, just this little paragraph toward the end of the chapter. Exodus 26, 31 through 35. It will provide a little context for our sermon passage. In a moment, we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 10. But first, Exodus 26, 31 through 35. Hear now the word of the Lord. You shall make a veil woven in blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. Amen. From Moses to Malachi, the Israelites lived with this bifurcation, this separation between the holy place and the most holy place. That not only was there restriction, those who lived outside the camp, from those who lived with inside the camp. There was further restriction that those who lived inside the camp, not all could go into the courts of the Lord. And further still, Not all could go into the holy place. And most of all, very few, indeed only one once a year, could go into the most holy place. This restricted gradient of holiness is what guided and governed the faith of our fathers throughout the Old Testament. That they should understand the nature of their relationship with God. And then Jesus came. And there is now no veil over the most holy place. With that in mind, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Our sermon this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. We continue our sermon series through the book of Hebrews, coming to this great big transition. For nine and a half chapters, we have heard the Holy Spirit argue again and again, Jesus is better. And now he applies that principle to our lives. So let's look together at this first application, this first paragraph, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. You're now the word of the Lord. Therefore, brethren... Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil, that is, 
his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Amen and amen. Our text begins with this little word, therefore. But behind that word are nine and a half chapters of spiritual argument. Jesus is better than the angels who spoke to our fathers in the book of Genesis. Therefore. Jesus is better than Moses who delivered the law of God to Israel on the mountain of Sinai. Therefore. Jesus is better than that tribe of Levi set aside to lead the Israelites in worship. Therefore. Jesus is better than the Aaronic priesthood. Better than their tabernacle. Better than their sacrifices. Better than their old covenant. Therefore, this therefore is drawing together all these threads that from Abel to Zechariah, from Moses to Malachi, the entire Old Testament has come together in one summary, in one culmination, in one conclusion, Jesus. Therefore. Because He is our Sabbath, because He is our sacrifice, because He is our priest, because He is our tabernacle, because He is what all these things point forward to. Therefore, brothers, there is a shared condition. This therefore, which draws together and sums up all the threads of gospel truth, who Christ is, what Christ has done, how he's represented to us in the older covenant is applied to all of us equally. Therefore, brethren, that is each and every one of us, co-heirs with Christ, spiritual siblings together, from what comes next, we should expect applications that are collective and communal. Okay? No individualism. No Lone Ranger Christians. Hebrews 10 through 13 cannot be obeyed in isolation. Therefore, brethren, as a body of Christ, as a bride of Christ, as the community of saints, we have two great privileges. First, we have boldness to enter the holiest. This in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest. The Holy Spirit here does not mean that part of the tabernacle or temple which was cut off 
except once a year for the high priest. No, he has already explained in nine and a half chapters that when he says the holiest and he means us, he means heaven itself. He means that we have boldness to go into heaven. And when he says boldness, he means free and unfettered access. He means unrestricted access. You don't have to schedule something. You don't have to get on his calendar. You don't have to pull out the cell phone and flip through the app and be like, well, what days do you have open? Well, what days do you have open? You don't have to synchronize the schedule. It it doesn't mean you have to clear the plate. Well, if I give up this activity, if I give up that activity. No, we have boldness to go into the most holy place. That means if you're sitting behind the wheel of a car, heaven is but a breath away. It means that if you're diving into a swimming pool, running across a soccer field, or football field, heaven is but a word away. You have free and unfettered access. It means that if you're standing at the stove, or at the sink, or lying in bed, or in the shower, or curled up in fetal position on the floor because you're in so much pain and sadness and agony that you can't move, heaven is a word away. We have boldness to go into the holiest place. This is our great privilege. It's a pity we value it so little. I mean, how much do we pray? Without ceasing? I don't have to leave what I'm doing to pray. I can still drive. I don't have to leave what I'm doing to pray. I can still swim and kick the ball and run and bike and work and shop and play. I can weave an awareness and an alertness to God in my everyday earthly life. Heaven has come to earth. The holiness, the most holiness, is right here with us. It's a breath away, it's a word away. I walk with God through life, as Enoch did. There is, however, one thing you do have to give up, though. There is, however, one thing you cannot do and pray. That's sin. That's sin. You cannot live for yourself. And you cannot live for your sin and indulge your flesh. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, having this free and unfettered access to heaven, let us imbue every earthly experience with heavenly hope and reality. Let us have Christ in every breath, in every moment of every day. And let us drive out every sin that alienates us from heaven. Our second great privilege, verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God. We have, as it were, gripped in one hand a boldness to go into heaven. We have, as it were, gripped in the other hand possession of a high priest who is over the house of God. By house of God, 
The Holy Spirit here means household or family. We possess an adoption that unites us to one another, such that the Spirit would call us brethren. We possess an adoption by which we may pray when we march into that most holy place of heaven, our Father. We may have Abba in our hearts and our Father on our lips. We are further in possession of a high priest who is over that family. He is a steward of grace, a minister of mercy. He is in the family of God, not merely as the firstborn, the heir with whom we are co-heirs. He is also the agent of adoption. He is, as it were, the little boy who runs around picking up all the neighbor kids and bringing them home to live with him in his father's house. He is the adopter in this family. He is over the house of God, this high priest, running around saying, you, 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 and you. You receive mercy. You receive love. You receive grace. Come. Live in my Father's house with me. We possess the great privilege of a high priest who is after us, welcoming us, drawing us into the family of God. Again, it's a pity we value him so little. That we should search the scriptures for eternal life and with the Pharisees miss That each and every one speaks of Him. That we should offer prayers which are not reconciled to God through the will of God in Christ, our High Priest. And that we should not see that every moment of every hour of every day of all our lives is meant to be lived in Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. I was teaching this point to the membership class just this morning. This creation, Paul says, this world, the creation, the earth, the heavens, the seas, and all that is in them, Paul says, was made in Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. He is not merely the central feature of redemption, he is the central feature of creation. Of course, we can pull out a same verse for providence too in history. He is the focal point of the creation. He is the focal point of providence. He is the focal point of redemption. He is the high priest over the house of God. In this, it should not come as any surprise halfway through chapter 10 of Hebrews. We have with one hand a great privilege. The work of Jesus Christ. And we have in the other hand, the person of Jesus Christ. And let us not relax either grip. Let us hold fast these truths. This is the two great privileges which we have been given the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now it's rooted in something. How did this come about? We are told in verses 19 and 20 that the root and ground, that the instrument through which this is accomplished is in verse 20 a new and living way. By this the Holy Spirit means not the old way, the new way. It is not the manner in which Moses mediated grace, 
not grace, grace. Ay, ay, ay. Moses dispensed mercy to the people of Israel. But it was done in the old manner, in the old administration. This is the new one, in which all mercy and all grace is found in one thing, the person and work of Jesus Christ. But it is also a living way. You see, Moses' law could only kill and condemn. Its life was found in finding the life to which it pointed, that is Christ, not in itself. In this way, the new way is a living way. Jesus has come, not as a condemner of the world, but as its Savior. He is a living way, a way in which life comes alive in us. How can this be so? Two ways in verse 19 and 20. This little central section begins and ends with the words, the blood of Jesus and the veil of His flesh. By saying the veil, the Holy Spirit seems to be saying that that curtain that I read about in Exodus 26, which hung between the holy place and the most holy place, was a type and a shadow of the incarnation. That the reason Israelites could not enter into the most holy place is because Christ had not robed himself in humanity yet. That veil is his flesh. It is to say that even as that veil hung from the hooks of gold that were mounted at the top to show that it was from heaven to earth that this salvation would come, so to Christ, being eternally the Son of God, took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. He robed himself in humanity wrapped himself in the veil of the temple so that he might come out from the presence of the Lord not only to set foot in the holy place and save Israel, not only to go out into the court of the Gentiles and save them, but according to the book of Hebrews, he went outside the camp where he, outside the camp, robed in that temple veil that is his flesh, took hold of it with his almighty hand and tore it in two and said, nothing stands between you and me now. No sin. No sorrow. No death. That veil was his flesh. And he has shredded it on the cross for your sin, for mine. This is why we have boldness in the holy place. This is why we love prayer. This is why we love talking to God. Because that door was blown open by the shredding of the veil and the flesh that was Christ's. That he took my humanity to open heaven, his heaven for me. But so too in the beginning in verse 19 it says by the blood of Jesus. By this the Holy Spirit calls back that imagery of the Old Testament. That the life was in the blood. 
Even as his flesh hung on the cross like a veil torn in two, so that the heavens would be opened to me and you, so that blood spilled from his veins and was poured out on the earth, his life better blood than Abel that still speaks, that life that was poured out in the ground was a righteous life, a sinless life, a faultless, blameless life. That blood in which was resurrection and eternal life, He gave it willingly for you and me. This is why we're bold to pray and why we love to pray. If you would pardon the pun, we are anemic in our worship because we lack the blood of Christ. Friends, let us look to Jesus. The blood and the flesh of Jesus. This imagery, of course, accumulates to the Lord's Supper. His blood and His flesh. That we are brought into a communion with Christ. Indeed, as brethren, a union with one another. A union with Christ, a communion with each other. Which is together a boldness to walk into the house of God. A boldness to live under the priestly reign of Jesus. These are our two great privileges. This is who we are. This is our ecclesiology. Our definition of the church. Who are we and what are we doing here? We are the recipients of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are those united to his life and his death and his resurrection. Those who have his blood and his flesh, spiritually speaking, who partake of him. Now, these are two great privileges. And I have spent a lot of time on them because I'm really excited about them and I like talking about our great privileges. But we still have three responsibilities to go. So let us hurry into those. Notice beginning in verse 22, the Holy Spirit gives us three great responsibilities. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. These three verbs, these three applications of gospel truth, draw near, hold fast, and consider, are all united to three familiar nouns. Notice this, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Notice again, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And then finally, verse 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Faith, hope, and love. Have we seen this before? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says these three abide. Faith, hope, and love. These are the three great imperatives of the Christian life. Because of Christ, let's have faith, hope, and love. Of course, what is more is in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that the greatest of these is love. Now, it's easy to assume that what Paul means is that that love is superior to its preceding faith and hope. But I hope you don't think that. When he says greater, he means fuller. 
He means the final expression. He means the end of the train. You see, what is in seed and root, faith, is invisible, buried in the ground of one's chest and one's mind. That faith, that seed, that root, must grow up out of the ground in hope. This sturdy stalk that rises straight toward God in heaven and is firm and unmovable like the trunk of a redwood or an oak. But even then, it's not complete. Until those invisible roots of faith, united to the nutrient soils of Christ's gospel, have grown up into a sturdy, unshakable hope that it then puts out branches and leaves we call love. Love for one another. And good works toward one another. I know at least one gardener in the room is loving this. Friends, this is the image that Paul gives us. Three things to guide our obedience to Christ. Faith, hope, and love. Let's look at them. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Notice first that faith and the obedience that is faith consists of a drawing near to God. It is not a running away. It is not a hiding. And it is not a standing still. Faith is a moving thing. And it moves in a set direction. It draws near to God. It is an animate thing. Active and alert and energetic. And we move toward God. That's what faith is. It's a moving nearer to God. When I have sinned, what do I do? I turn away. And I draw near to God. When I am tempted to sin, what do I do? I turn away and I draw near to God. When I am sad and full of sorrow, what do I do? I turn away and I draw near to God. To do this requires a new heart, indeed a true heart. It is a true heart that is a heart of flesh, not of stone. It is a heart full of faith. Pulsing with the love of Christ shed abroad in our hearts, says the Apostle. It is a true heart like a compass is true to north. It is a heart whose affections always drive to its lodestone, which is Christ. This is faith. That I draw near to God and that even though I get like a compass turned around by my many sins and sorrows... Sooner or later, I come back to that heading, which is Christ. And I return to drawing near to God. This is faith. It is also a full assurance. I've pointed this out to you before. The Westminster Confession of Faith calls only two things infallible. Scripture and assurance. Don't separate them. Infallible assurance lies in Scripture, not you. In the reading of the Scriptures, in the believing of these promises, is a 
full assurance, a complete and unshakable confidence that I can, will, and do draw near to God, that this is what I believe. God will not reject me or ignore me. God will let me draw near. Then he gives us an illustration of this, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Okay, what might this represent? Ezra could tell you, if he could talk. Is it not baptism? That our faith is expressed again and again and again as we together apply this baptism. This is why I decried our individuality in the beginning. With all love and respect to our dear Baptist brothers. This baptism ain't about Ezra. It's about Jesus and his church. He just happens to be today's recipient. And in a few months, there will be a new one. This isn't just his baptism. It's our baptism. We partake together. We observe together. This sprinkling of our hearts is a brethren thing. A shared thing. A united reality. Our bodies washed with pure water. We have entered into this community that is identified as baptized. Those who believe and live by faith. Those who draw near to the living God. Assured of his welcome. And if we are tempted to say, do we know that Ezra is indeed welcome if he should dare to draw near to the living God? Then I say to you, Jesus said, let the little children come unto me and do not hinder them. Yes, Jesus wants them to come near. This is who we are. Those who draw near. This is what we do. We draw near. But secondly, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Not only do we draw near to the living God because Christ has made him accessible to us. Because Christ has carried us into the heavenlies through his body and blood shed for us. But we also hold fast this hope. We grow up straight and fast into this heavenly reality. That there is a firm grip within us. That I am sure of these things without wavering. Without wavering, the Spirit here speaks of that wandering that a young tree may do as it grows up. That wiggling to and fro and not growing straight and sure. But it is not so with us that hold fast. But notice what we hold fast. Hope is the object of the noun that we hold fast to. We hold fast our confession of the hope. It is not merely that we hope as in an internal, internal state. But it is an outward confession. It is a thing we declare publicly to the church and to the world. Not only do we receive baptism, a passive activity. We profess faith. In active activity. So that we who partake of the Lord's Supper thus declare the Lord's death until he comes again. 
we advance from the passivity of baptism to the activity of the supper, that we might grow up into an expression of hope. Thus our reading from 1 Peter chapter 3. Let us be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. That famous line, apologists love it. Of course, what immediately precedes it? What gives us readiness to defend the hope that is within us? Sanctify Christ as holy in your hearts. Our readiness to defend our hope depends on the body and blood of Christ being sanctified in us. The person and work of Jesus Christ being reverenced by us. That when he is sanctified as holy in our hearts, it is then that our hope grows. Just as our anemia in prayer is so often due to our failure to appropriate and rejoice in the gospel, so too our failure to draw near to God in faith is often tied to our failure to see baptism and to rejoice in it. But so too our failure to hold fast hope and to begin to waver and to wonder is because we seek hope in what we do. We seek hope in our spiritual rituals and our religious piety. We seek hope in our sanctification. We seek hope in our growth and grace. But what verse 23 tells us is that we are to seek hope in Him who has promised. In His character, He is faithful. Let us seek hope in Him. Let us have hope. And let us hold fast hope. Because we are holding fast to Him. He is faithful. And His promises are sure. It has been said, and I think it is wise for us to consider. That if we are we are to do so by my scriptures. By more deep apprehension of its promises. Assurance is infallible. Because it's not rooted in me and my experience. It's rooted in the promises of God. And Christ's accomplishing of them. Thirdly. Let us draw near in faith. Let us hold fast in hope. And let us consider one another. This is not a one-way thing. No Lone Ranger Christians. No individuals. Let us consider one another. Let us actually think about each other. I mean, how often do you think about the church people? How often do you think about fellow believers? Not just these church people, but all church people. How often do you consider the Christians and the kingdom? Let us consider one another. Let's think about each other. Let's wonder about each other. In order to stir up love and good works. Notice that the end of this command is not that we would think about each other. So that we might be more loving and good workers. This command says, let us think about each other so that we can figure out how to make each other more loving and good workers. Isn't that weird? I mean, doesn't that defile our American sensibilities? 
Our responsibility as a community is to stir up love in each other. As parents, do we stir up love in our children and good works? Do you know how hard that is? Behavioral modification is way easy. Do we as spouses stir up love and good works in one another? It's way easy just to force each other to submit and to do what we want. As fellow members, do we stir up love and good works? Do we think prayerfully, how can I help you be more loving? How can I help you be better workers of God's will and more obedient? Do do we think about that, pray about that? Who here can you help increase in love and good works? Let us consider this so that we might stir each other up. I love that verb, stir, agitate, not irritate. But certainly stir up. There's an activeness to it. An energy to it. That I am animated by my faith and my hope to express love in your life that you in turn might love. To do good to you according to Paul Peter's command in order that you might do good. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of themselves together. Now this means primarily and chiefly the Sabbath day gathering, the full assembly of the church. But it also means day to day, week to week, and throughout the time that is to come. That we should not have a manner of isolation, a habit of loneliness. We were sitting in a conference last fall. I've told this story to some of you recently. And the speaker was urging dramatically that we should take seriously the fact that Satan, like a pack of wolves, preys on lone sheep. And we must stay together in a flock to stay safe and to stay in the warmth and the fellowship of the love of God. And someone raised their hand and asked a wonderful question. What if you are an unwed adult? What if you don't have a marriage or children and family worship? How do you practice that? He was a Brit. And he put on his big British smile. You know, it's about this big. And he said, you get together every day with other Christians to sing, read, and pray. No one is exempt from daily fellowship. Does that seem impossible? Does that seem utterly impossible? To spend every day, at least a small portion of it, not just in private worship, but in small groups or families. To recognize that I can't get through the week, let alone life, without drawing near to God and one another. Without having someone stir up my love and my good works. I need to assemble with others every Lord's Day to be sure. But frankly, every day. Now don't torture yourselves. Don't expect that if you're so far from that, that you can go and change it tomorrow. Be patient. 
It is something to be worked toward, something to be cultivated. Be patient. Work toward that. Set it as a goal. And then so too the Spirit says, as you make this manner of gathering together, fellowshipping together, exhort one another. It's not just me. I get up on Sunday and I yell at you. But friends, exhort one another. Come together and speak in love to one another. There was this extraordinary revival that swept through Kenya in the latter half of the 20th century. And according to Jack Miller, believers would walk up and down the street, see one another in public and say, Hello, brother, what sins are you repenting of today? When was the last time anyone asked you to name the sins you were repenting of today? When was the last time you asked anyone else? I'll tell you right now, I don't want any of you to ask me at the back door. (laughs) That's a terrifying prospect. And yet, is it? For those in whom there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus? For those who freely confess their sins and he is willing and faithful and just and able to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness? Is it a terrifying prospect? To say to one another on a daily basis, here's what I want to learn from Jesus today. Here's how I want to grow today. Here's the sins I want victory over today. Well, he gives us a good reason to not be terrified. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Today is a good day to draw near to God. Because one day you're going to have to. Today is a good day to hold fast to hope. Because one day you're going to have nothing else. Today is a good day to consider one another and stir up love and good works. Because one day you won't have another day. There is a day coming when Christ comes. We live between two great comings. The coming that we read about in our opening verses, in which God took flesh and blood and dwelt among us and tore the gates of heaven off and said, live on earth like you are in heaven. But there is a second coming too, a last coming, a final coming. And in that coming, heaven and earth are one. In anticipation of that day, live today in faith, hope, and love. Beloved, because Jesus is everything, live today and every day in faith, hope, and love. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this beautiful message and we pray that you would apply it to our hearts. That through the power of your spirit, we would wake up and see Jesus. Draw near to him in faith and lay hold of him in hope and walk before him in love. And we pray that you would bless us, not merely as individuals, but indeed as a body together, as a community of faith. 
to do these things and to bless one another in the doing of these things to the praise and glory of your great name. For in that name we pray. Amen.